I am worried we have become so accustomed to constantly consuming information that we don't have that time that our brains so desperately need for ideation and creative thinking and a sense of identity. Welcome to the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by how we can excel at dealing with the universe of information and the author of the book, Thriving on Overload. Every week, we share insights from information masters on how they transform today's avalanche of information into insight, foresight, and better decisions. For more goodness on this topic, be sure to visit thrivingonoverload.com, where there are a wealth of resources to help you thrive, including all podcast episodes with transcripts, excerpts from my book, and if you are really intent on amplifying your information productivity, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, which helps you develop a personal information plan you can immediately put into practice. And be sure to sign up for our weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter if you want to optimize your information productivity. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe and give a rating or review on iTunes. It helps others interested in this topic to find these resources. Now, on with the show. On this episode, we learn from Dr. Christy Goodwin. Christy is a digital well-being and productivity researcher, speaker, author, and consultant, helping corporations promote employee digital well-being and performance in the workplace. You can find more on her work at drchristygoodwin.com. That's D-R-K-R-I-S-T-Y-G-O-O-D-W-I-N.com. And social channels, including LinkedIn and Instagram in particular, with full details in the show notes. In this episode, she shares insights on working with your biological blueprint, the four pillars to peak performance in a digital age, digital guardrails, improving microhabits, and far more. Keep listening to learn from Christy's great insights. Christy, it's wonderful to have you on the show. So we live in a world immersed with information. And you focus on this idea of digital well-being, which I think we all can relate to, where uh, the digital brings us many good things, but if we don't treat it the right way, it uh, might lead us astray. So how should we be thinking about, how should we be dealing with this world of digital wonder and danger? Well, I often say whether you love it or loathe it, technology is here to stay. I think a lot of us have a love-hate relationship with our digital devices. And so my approach is that it's it's here to stay, um, regardless of our approach. Um, So I believe we need to learn how to use technology in ways that are congruent with how our brains and bodies are designed, what I call our HOS, our human operating system. And I'm worried that so many of us are using devices in ways that are completely incongruent and out of alignment with how our brains and bodies are designed. And this is why so many people are feeling overwhelmed, um, they're feeling stressed, they're distracted and exhausted because our digital habits are out of alignment with how we are designed as humans. I often say we've got a biological blueprint. We cannot avoid that blueprint and we have to start to work with it rather than against it. So, so a bit later, I want to dig into what you do. But first, I'd like to just pull back to some general prescriptions. So I think you work with school children as well as uh, grown adults and would love to hear sort of what your advice is, how you help them to 
deal with, I think, a, a very, very common challenge we all have. Yes. So I often say there's four pillars to peak performance in the digital age. And it doesn't matter if you're a screenager, i.e. a teenager who has a, you know, a digital infatuation with your phone or your gaming console, or whether you're an adult. I think if we were all really honest, many of us would admit um, that we are tethered to technology. Adults often justify it in terms of saying, oh, I need it for work or, you know, I need to be responsive. Maybe I've got aging parents or young children to care for. But the reality is that many of us have developed some unhealthy digital behaviours and dependencies. So I say if we want to thrive in this digital world that we've all inherited, um, there are four pillars for peak performance. The first thing that we have to do, whether you're a a parent or whether you're a, a child or an adult, is we have to create our digital guardrails. So we have to have some digital borders and boundaries because we know technology has crept into every single crevice of our lives. Research tells us that upwards of 47% of us now toilet tweet. That is, we use our devices in the bathroom. Some other studies tell us that 90% of adults reach for their phone before their partner first thing in the morning. So if we don't put some parameters in place, technology seeps into every part of our life. So the first pillar is borders and boundaries. The second pillar is what I call neuroproductivity principles. So we have to start to use technology in ways that work with our brains and bodies. So for example, I often debunk the myth of multitasking. Many people today, however, are doing, you know, video calls and triaging their inboxes. They're, you know, at home watching Netflix and they're also triaging their inboxes. We are working for really long stretches of time and and our prefrontal cortex, the part of our brain that does our heavy lifting, is not biologically designed to work for long stretches of time. So we're just working against our neurobiology. So the second pillar is neuroproductivity principles. The third pillar is around disabling digital distractions. We know that not only are distractions deadly to our focus, but they have a really strong lag effect. So a study was done a couple of years ago that looked at once a person is distracted, be that with the ping of an email, be that you know a physical person coming to your, your desk and interrupting you, once we are distracted, it takes the average adult 23 minutes and 15 seconds to reorient their attention back into that deep focus state. It's called the resumption lag. So I really think we need to take back our control. We are being peppered throughout the day now with digital distractions, with alerts and notifications and reminders, and they're really deadly to our focus and our well-being. Um, And the fourth pillar is digital disconnection. We have to unplug. We are designed to take regular breaks. I don't know about you, Ross, but I've never had a great idea in my inbox or in an Excel spreadsheet. My great ideas come in the shower. They come when I go for a run, when I go for a swim, when I go on a plane with no Wi-Fi. So we need that opportunity to enter what neuroscientists call the default mode network. So those four pillars are borders and boundaries or those guardrails neuroproductivity principles, so working the way our brain's designed, digital distractions, controlling those, and digital disconnection. And I think if we can get those four things right, we can thrive in this digital landscape. Yes, uh, absolutely. Our our brains uh, were developed quite a while ago, and this uh, digital world is quite new. So it's a little bit environment that our our brains are used to. So those seem like some really valuable principles 
to follow. Our brains, we have ancient Paleolithic brains. You're exactly right. We have brains, you know, our brains' hard drives were designed pre-computers and pre-technology. So we have brains that are biologically designed to go and forage and hunt and seek for information. You know, we used to go and borrow a book or read an encyclopedia. We used to go and get information. Today, we find ourselves in a world where we have information constantly thrust at us. You know, the digital demands and the digital intensity of our day has grown exponentially in recent years, hence why so many people are overwhelmed. And so our brain isn't designed to have information constantly coming to us. In fact, our brain perceives anything that comes to us as a potential threat. Our brain cannot actually differentiate between a tiger chasing us and a team's notification pinging at us. Our brain goes, external source or external trigger, I'm in panic or or threat mode. And yet this is how many of us now operate on a day-to-day basis. So so one of the things we could perhaps distill, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, is from your principles is we have times when we are engaged with digital world. There are times when we are not engaged with digital world. Preferably, for example, when we're in the bathroom or with our partner or <laughs> or other things which may have a higher priority. Would, would that be right? Absolutely. And it, it's not a, um, you know, I often say digital detoxes or digital amputation, if you're a parent, are not feasible strategies. Um, we have to learn to live with technology, but I think we have to take back our control because, again, I think if many of us critically examined the relationship we have with our myriad of devices, many of us would have to acknowledge that we have an unhealthy dependence. You know, our phone um, pings and we salivate like Pavlov's dogs. Um, you know, we we are really finding it hard to, to break away. And I, I think we need to remember that to function optimally, we have those that biological blueprint that I mentioned earlier. We have some some hard biological needs that have to be met, and I'm worried that our digital habits are encroaching on some of those basic needs. So we need rest, we need to sleep, we need to be physically active, we need exposure to sunlight, and our digital behaviours have all significantly shaped and influenced each of those biological needs in some way. So the way the way I. Uh put it sometimes is that we are all, uh, well, almost all of us addicts to the digital distraction. And so we have to just recognize that we are addicts. And so we need to try to control our behavior. But unfortunately, you know, in the case of, uh, for example, alcohol, it's not something we can give up completely because we do require our digital devices. So we have to manage it, some which we have to be able to control, get the value from, but also be able to let go of. Absolutely. And that's why I often say why we don't need to sort of strive for a digital detox or having really clear breaks from technology, because the harsh reality is we're going to live in a digitally saturated world. We often know that when people do take a significant break from technology, it often creates a binge and purge cycle. So they have three days offline, but come back on Monday morning and catch up on the myriad of emails and messages that were awaiting them. So what I think we're better off to do is to create sustainable, long-term behaviours and habits that will allow us to take back our control of technology and not be as digitally dependent as what many of us are. So perhaps like to come back this this idea of what it is we can do to create those borders and boundaries. We'd also like to dig in what happens when we are engaged with digital technology. So you, a lot of your work is deeply research-based. Uh, you're keeping across the science. So when you are engaged with 
well, not necessarily digital, but probably largely digital sources in your research. How is it that you find the best information? How, what are the, how do you identify sources? How do you focus your time? What are the ways and practices where you find the most relevant information and pull that together to the insights that you gain? Yes. So believe it or not, I do find um, so some social media platforms a great starting point for current research, um, particularly LinkedIn, I would say, is a great platform, um, especially with current research in terms of how people are working in hybrid and remote fashions. I think there's some really current research um, being conducted and often initially disseminated or synthesized on those platforms, I then like to go a little bit deeper. Um, I have some uh, Google alerts set up. So I am across any current news trends with key terms that I use for my um, research and and keynote speaking. So I can stay um, up to date in terms of that. I have some journals that I subscribe to. So it is a matter of scanning contents list and figuring out what what articles warrant further um, investigation. A really simple tool I have found is a tool called Pocket. I love Pocket. So I gather any research articles or blog posts or longer forms of content. um, And I love the, the Pocket feature of it being able to read the audio back to me so that I can digest that information sometimes on the go as well. So I I try and use um, a myriad of different approaches. I still love reading books. I think there's a real (laughs) merit in terms of reading traditional printed books, not audio books. I need to highlight, I need to scribe, but then it's, uh, and this is still a work in process, how do I synthesise the information I get from those myriad of sources? And for me, I use predominantly Evernote um, to keep track of of information and notes. And then I have some running Google Docs um, and Google Sheets where I've come up with some sort of frameworks along those four pillars that I mentioned before, where I try and archive, synthesize, paraphrase, cite sources, so that when it comes to doing something like writing a book or doing something where I need to draw on that research, I've got a central source of truth for where all that disparate knowledge and those sources have come from. Is there a way that you link Pocket and Evernote, or do you use those separately? I tend to use them separately. If I found something that I really enjoyed listening to, so uh, in in Pocket, I definitely then pop it in Evernote. But a Pocket is more my form of digesting content. So when I don't want to get sucked into the digital vortex, when I go in my inbox and see a link to an article that I know will be really pertinent, it's so easy for me to click on it. And the one email that I went into my inbox to find I've forgotten about and I'm off down the digital rabbit hole reading a paper that really shouldn't be done during that time. Um, I've also found scheduling time so that I do have time to digest that information on Pocket um, or anything in my inbox. I've got a a five folder method in my inbox. And one of the folders is the digest folder. So any information that I know I want to consume, I've assigned some time in my calendar each week where I will have designated time to consume the information, which is a core part of my job. Staying current and up to date with the research is a really fundamental, if not the most critical part of my job. Absolutely. And so it's what I describe as the difference between scanning 
and assimilating. Yes. So you can scan to be able to find things and then separate period of time, which is the assimilating. And that's when you can take it in and make it part of your understanding, your knowledge and mental models. A couple of years ago, Nicholas Carr wrote a book, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brain. And he t- I loved the analogy in that book where he talked about how many of us now, because of this infobesity, this constant saturation of information, many of us have become jet ski riders instead of deep sea divers. And so in years gone by, we used to read the entire article from top to tail. Um, But now we're looking for headlines, pull out boxes, subtext. um, And so we are really skimming the surface. And I think sometimes out of necessity, we do need to do that. But I also think we need to carve out time to do that deep reflective thinking um, and have that uninterrupted time where we can read something in its entirety and make those mental connections as well. Yes, yes. So, so I think uh, the book in some countries is called The Shallows. Yes, what the internet So that's where is. most people spend their time. Yep. Whereas, uh, yes, the, the, a lot of the value is not uh, at the surface, but uh, deeper below. So it's a habit we need to pull back. Mm. You are listening to the Thriving on Overload podcast. If you truly want to increase your information productivity, then check out the Thriving on Overload interactive course. It is designed to significantly enhance your information practices and habits, guiding you through creating your own personal information plan so you can excel in a world of overload. Go to thrivingonoverload.com slash course to find out more. Now back to the show. At the beginning, you you started talking about LinkedIn, for example, as a source. And so I think LinkedIn or any social platform, they all have value, but they can also be abused, use and abuse. And so I'd love to just hear a little bit more specifically how you, um, and of course, there's a wealth of wonderful resources in LinkedIn, but it can also have its own trap. So how how specifically do you make sure that you are finding the best resources on LinkedIn, for example? Yes. So I've been really selective about who I've elected to follow, um, about what hashtags I've elected to also um, follow. And I find that really helps me to curate a a really positive and helpful experience. I have a, a three strikes policy. So if I see somebody sharing content that just doesn't resonate or is no longer of interest to me, if that comes across my radar roughly three times, I don't have a formal striking system, but roughly three times, then I choose to unfollow or unsubscribe if they were sending newsletters, for example. So it's really about being intentional. And I think a lot of us have forgotten. We do, and I know the algorithm serves us up content that it predicts very accurately, might I add, what would be of interest to us. But at the end of the day, we really do have a lot more control over who and what content comes into our feed um, than what we often assume. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I, I think that's a fantastic policy, this idea of if it's whatever the social platform, if it's not uh, good, then you get it out of your stream. And yeah, as you say, it's your they pick up on the platforms, pick up on your behaviors. So oh. if you engage with content, it'll assume that you like it. So only engage with things you want to see more of. Absolutely. And we have to be really also mindful because as humans, we have a negativity bias. We are naturally much more likely to click on 
a negative headline or something that insinuates perhaps something more negative will be in the article. And again, thinking of the time of the day when we do use social media. I often say to people, don't bookend your day with social media. So first thing in the morning and last thing at night. From a sleep perspective, we know obviously at night being on a a blue lit device can be really detrimental, not only to the quality of our sleep, but also the quantity of our sleep. But psychologically, you know, being on a device, particularly if it's a touch screen, we're very interactive. So it's not just passive. It can really hyper arouse our brain. Equally in the morning, you only need to see one upsetting story or one upsetting news headline, which isn't very hard to do, <laughs> hard to avoid these days. And you activate your limbic brain. So that fight, flight or flee response just by scrolling what we, we consume. And we are, and we know often, At night, our prefrontal cortex that helps us regulate our behaviour, it basically limps to the finish line. It's worked hard all day in our our roles and it is often exhausted. So when we are tired, our prefrontal cortex that manages our impulses and our self-regulation, it doesn't work as effectively. And part of the brain called our amygdala at night, our amygdala fires up, which is the emotional hub of our brain. So we're much more likely to click on something with a negative connotation or an upsetting headline. And this sends powerful messages to the Google recommendation algorithm that serve me up more of this content. So I think if we're careful about the time of the day when we use social media and having some parameters around who we follow, we can have a really healthy and positive relationship with it. You mentioned negativity bias and certainly we know that the news, any news source we choose to go to will be almost all negative, not not many good news stories around. But I presume this is a cognitive finding in terms of a negativity bias. So, So where does that come from? Or is there any way that we can control that negativity bias? It's part of our um, biological DNA almost that in order for us to survive as a species, we had to be on the lookout. We had to be on the hunt for any potential threats or dangers. So it's baked into our biology to have that negative response. You know, if there was a loud noise, it might be a predator approaching me. It might be a potential storm on the horizon. So we are almost um, wired. This is, again, why alerts and notifications are so detrimental to us because it's an external threat that comes to us, it automatically um, kicks off that negative way of thinking. This is a danger. This is urgent. This is important. I'm under potential threat where it's just a, a, you know, a Teams notification or a reminder on your calendar. I think it is traced back to our ancestral roots as a human that in order for us to survive, we had to first assume that it was a negative or a dire experience on the horizon. So in terms of defining those borders or boundaries, that was the, the first principle, set some borders or boundaries. So how, how do you go about that? I mean, what is there any, do you choose times? Do you choose places? Uh, you know, if you're telling somebody to define some borders and boundaries, how, sh- how should they do that? So I think uh, most certainly all of those boundaries that you suggested. So I think we need to have some firm, um, I call them our digital guardrails about where we'll use technology. You know, where in your home are the no-go tech zones? Is it the meal area? Is it your bedroom? Is it the bathroom? Is If, if you've got young children, is it the car? Is that, that car trip, that sacred place for conversation and, and engagement? Um, I think we need to have really firm boundaries. And this is where I'm working with a lot of organisations at the moment to establish their their team's digital guardrails around when do we use technology. 
Um, recent Microsoft data was telling us that 28% of knowledge workers are now working between 10 and 11 p.m. at night. That is a staggering finding. People are saying they can't switch off. They feel like they need to be responsive. Many people are saying they're spending the preponderance of their workday going from one Zoom or Teams meeting to another with very little time now for their deep focused work, hence why they're working late into the evening. So I think we need to have parameters around when we'll use technology. Part of this, the digital guardrails is coming up with what I call a communication escalation plan. So when there is a critical time-sensitive piece of information that you need to disseminate to your team, you know the one platform or one tool through which that will be communicated. So people don't feel like they need to be constantly checking emails or the team's messages. Um, So I think those boundaries around most certainly um, when we use technology, um, where we use it, um, coming up with some parameters around how, you know, are we using it? Are we going to have a a digital curfew? For example, that's something I recommend that people switch off ideally 60 minutes before they want to fall asleep, avoid using any small backlit um, and blue lit devices. So coming up with some of those parameters, again, so that we take back control rather than the other way around where technology really controls us and dominates our day and nights. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I think it's interesting how few people actually explicitly set those parameters. You know, there's, uh, they may sort of have better habits than others, but not actually setting specific boundaries. And I think that's, that's, that, that's something which could be of a, you know, enormous value. It is. And that's what I'm finding with teams, the teams that I have worked with to articulate their digital guardrails. These are uh, team agreements, um, but where people come up with what I colloquially refer to as their tech expectations. You know, what are what's an acceptable email response rate? Um, when do I use a Teams chat versus an email versus the 15 WhatsApp messages that I bombard you with? Again, this is almost giving people permission to put focus mode on so that your Slack or your Teams notification communicates that you're in a deep focus state and you don't want to be interrupted. Yes, there are tools now that we can use to override. So if someone is in a deep focus state, if there is a time sensitive, critical piece of information, you can in some instances override that. Um, But coming up with those parameters um, in a team level really has made a big difference with people, not only their productivity, they're saying, now I feel like I've almost got permission to carve out deep, uninterrupted, focused periods of time, but also their well-being because people are saying, I feel like I can switch off. If everybody's singing from the same hymn sheet, um, it's almost as though I've got sort of a mental nod that it's okay for me to unplug and and disconnect. So that's fantastic. Uh, So when you talk about a team, around uh, coming to these kinds of agreements how typically how large are these teams so i've worked with both small and large organizations um with some smaller organizations um we and there's a few steps so the first part of this process is doing a digital audit so um, a lot of um, organizations at the moment are using um, microsoft so they can get some um, data from their viva insights um, tool which tells us how long they're spending on meetings how many emails what time emails are going out um, some really granular um, non-identifiable 
reliable data that we can look for sort of patterns and digital ways of working. Then I often run focus groups, and this depends on the size of the organisation. Sometimes an organisation picks a a small team to roll this out with. Other times I worked with a really large organisation, and that focus group involved participants from several different teams, from several um, different parts of the business, and with several different levels within their, for want of a better word, organisational ranks. So we had a real cross-section because it's been really interesting the way that leaders often think that their team are using technology and the way that their team are using it but wish their leaders would use it in a different way has been really interesting. So once we've done the data analysis, we've had some focus groups, then I formulate a draft set of these digital guardrails. It then goes back to the focus groups. They then sometimes run it past their teams or their divisions or their fellow leaders and then come back with feedback and I revise a second copy of the guardrails And again, it goes through the next process and there's very little that often is changed from then and then it's presenting it to the the bigger team or the organisation. But also bearing in mind that this is a a living, breathing document because things are evolving. Anyone that tells you this is how hybrid work works, I think is duping you because everybody's figuring this out as we go. Absolutely. So so in some cases, these agreements would go across the entire organisation. They are, and with the caveat that that says that understanding, you know, some teams might have a certain deadline or a project that might need a revision or adjustment. Um, Some teams operate, might have a different operational cadence. So there's some variation. They're not, and because it's an agreement, it's not a policy, it's not a strict, you must do this. But what we're hearing from the teams that have rolled this out across their organisation is that people feel like they can stick to some of the 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 digital borders and boundaries that they want to put in place because there's a unanimous agreement that this is how we'll operate. It's also giving people a common language and I don't want to say call people out, but to hold others to account. So if they are, you know, peppering their teammates with emails at 11pm at night, you can gently remind them, hey, remember we said we, we schedule those emails to go out during traditional business hours. By all means, if you have more flexible work arrangements, which means you are by choice wanting to work at night and send those emails, you can do so, but please don't send them out to land in other people's inboxes. We come up with norms, practices and principles around how do we use video meetings in an optimal way? Um, How do we manage emails? When do I send an email versus Teams chat? So really coming up with almost the digital parameters. And again, it is evolving and changing as we've got people going back into the office and some people still working predominantly remotely, but it is a really good starting point at least um, for those organisations. Yeah, no, absolutely. Instead of uh, there's a big difference between those organisations where these uh, issues aren't even discussed as to where that there is uh, some kind of uh, recognition that there's better and worse ways to do it. This is one of my concerns. I think we'd all agree that, and the data is corroborating this, that rates of burnout um, are really at concerning levels. And I think one of the chief reasons, not the only reason, but one of the chief reasons is that we have st- And again, through no fault of our own, you know, in in March 2020, many team members took their laptop under their arm and said, go home and, and work from home for a little while. And so we've tried to come up with these digital ways of working on the fly. There was no big ramp up period to undergoing a huge change program, which most of us did. And I think what's happened is we've 
um, embedded some unhealthy, unsustainable digital habits and behaviours. And I think that is why so many people are experiencing clinical symptoms of of burnout um, or concerning levels of burnout because we're using technology in ways that are completely misaligned with how our brains and bodies work best. Indeed. So to round out on this theme of thriving on overload, prospering in a world of unlimited information, what are any concluding recommendations you would make to, to people that want to uh, to uh, deal well with this world? I often say to people, I often talk about micro habits. So it's not about going through a digital detox or a radical overhaul of your, your digital ways of working. It's just making small little micro adjustments. So simple things like putting your phone somewhere where you cannot see it when you want to get your deep focused work done. Why? study told us from the University of Austin, Texas, that just seeing our phone, even if it is on silent and face down, if our phone is in our line of sight, it drops our cognitive performance by around 10%. I often say to people, seeing your phone makes you 10% dumber. So popping your phone in a drawer in another room when you want to get that focused work done. Um, Disabling non-essential notifications, um, bundling or batching. Most platforms now and apps give you the option of scheduling what time you want the notifications to come to you. Creating VIP notifications. So if you're working with a colleague or a client on time-sensitive project, when you put focus mode or do not disturb mode on, everybody else is blocked, but those people on the VIP list get through. And my third one would be unplugging. I think we've lost the art of being idle with our thoughts. You know, every piece of our white space now, waiting for the the coffee while the barista makes your coffee, we pick up our phones. Sitting at the red light, the traffic lights, people pull out their phone. And our mind needs to meander. This is where we come up with creative ideas. And I am worried we have become so accustomed to constantly consuming information that we don't have that, that time that our brains so desperately need for ideation and also for creative thinking and a sense of identity. So they'd be my my three top ones. Put your phone somewhere where you can't see it, control your notifications and digitally disconnect and daydream. That's fantastic. Fantastic advice. So I think uh, anybody listening just needs to do one or even all three of those easy things and uh, their life will be better. So Chrissy, where can people find more about your work? The irony isn't lost on me. I'm encouraging people to <laughs> digitally disconnect. But if you do want to consume, if, I, if I'm not hopefully going to get three strikes from you, um, I try and share bite-sized, really practical bits of information. Yes, I'm a researcher, but... I like to say, I'm, someone introduced me the other day and said, Christy's a pracademic. Um, and I thought they meant practically an academic. They said, no, 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 you're practical and you're an academic. So I try and provide um, science-backed solutions, but really simple, practical things we can do to tame our tech habits. So I'm at drchristygoodwin.com and I try and share practical, helpful information on LinkedIn and also on Instagram. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, Christy. It's been really valuable and insightful. Pleasure, Ross. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the show. If you want more resources to help you thrive in a world of exponential information, go to thrivingonoverload.com, where you can find all podcast episodes, transcripts, show notes, excerpts from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, and a trove of other useful content and resources, including a weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to keep across it all. 
If you like this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.